Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll Thank you for letting me help you learn God's Word. And if you want to learn more, go to markdriscoll.org. I've got a weekly newsletter answering your questions, daily devotions, blogs that are Bible teaching and their orientation, and a small mountain of sermons going through lots of books of the Bible. So join me at markdriscoll.org and we'll help you learn even more of God's Word. We're all here because of one man. What's his name? Jesus. His name is Jesus, the most significant, the most important, the most influential person who has ever lived or will ever live in the history of the world. More songs have been sung regarding him, more books written concerning him, more paintings painted of him than anyone who has lived in the history of the world. In fact, we divide history by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of this man, not just a good man, not just a great man, but the one and only God-man, Jesus Christ. We divide it into B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, and our holidays are all about him from Easter celebrating his resurrection to Christmas where the whole world stops to remember his birth. No one, no one, no one is in the same category of history as this man, Jesus Christ. Here's what Napoleon had to say about a man who lived 2,000 years ago, never held a political office, never married, never had children, never made much money, never wrote a book, and never traveled more than a few hundred miles from home. Napoleon says, and I quote, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, and Charlemagne, and I have all founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ, he says, founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him, including the men gathered here on this day. And we gather with billions of people around the world worshiping Jesus Christ as God, Lord, Savior, and King. And as we gather today to look at our lives, my question in examining his life is this, how did Jesus live the perfect life? That's the subject for our study. I told you previously that the first lecture sermon was to heal you, this one is to fill you. In the first sermon, we looked at Jesus' relationship with the Father. Today, we will look at Jesus' relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to Jesus, we read this in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God entered into human history. The Creator entered into His creation. And Theologians will call this the incarnation. Make you feel like you got your money's worth? I'll give you a few big words. There's your first one. Incarnation. Carne means meat. How many of you like carne asada? Okay. Amen. Praise the Lord. You should. You should. You should. You should. It'll be at the banquet table in the kingdom. Carne asada is meat. How many of you eat chili? They were praying for your wives, but you eat chili and she endures the repercussions. Nonetheless, there is chili and then there is chili con carne that's with meat. 
Incarnation is God in flesh. It's God coming in meat, in a human body. And what we read here is the word that is God came in flesh, became a man. This is what we mean every Christmas when we send out our Christmas cards and we say that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The question is, how did he live the perfect life? How did he live the sinless life? How did he live the exemplary life? When he was tempted to sin, let me ask you a question. Was Jesus tempted to sin? Say yes. Good job, okay. Jesus was tempted to sin. It says that Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and he had a decision to make. He was tempted as you were tempted. The Bible says that he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God. That means that he learned. How did Jesus learn? Jesus forgave people who did evil against him. How did he forgive them? Jesus loved people who were unlovable. How did he love them? How was Jesus able to live the most history-altering, soul-satisfying, destiny-changing life in the history of the world. Now there was an early church council called the Council of Chalcedon. They met in around 451 AD and they were asking the question, how did Jesus live his life? And they came to the conclusion and all branches of Christianity agree that this is the teaching of God's word, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's fully, eternally God who became a man and entered into human history. One God, two, uh, one, one God, fully God, fully man. I gotta get this right, otherwise I gotta fire myself. So one, one person, Jesus Christ, two natures, fully God, fully man. So when he's tempted, when he's learning, when he's forgiving, when he's suffering, did Jesus suffer? He really did. The question is, how did he endure those things? Because if we learn how he lived his life, that could be how we live our life. This is why athletes study great athletes. This is why leaders study great leaders. This is why CEOs study great CEOs. We try to find someone who is better than us and learn from them so we could become like them. Well, the best man in the history of the world is Jesus, and we need to know how he lived his life so that we could live our life. Now, if you read some of the early church creeds, they ignore his life altogether. They go from he was born of the Virgin Mary to he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. They miss the whole middle. He's in his mother's arms, he's hanging on the cross, and it misses everything in the middle. What happens then, some people look at the life of Jesus They'll say, well, he's God. So when he's being tempted, he's not really tempted because God's not really tempted. When he's learning, he's not really learning because God is all-knowing. God doesn't need to learn anything. When he's suffering, he's not really suffering because God can't really suffer. He's beyond all suffering. The picture then is that Jesus is like Superman. On the outside, he looks like Clark Kent. But underneath, he's really Superman. So he's not really struggling. He's not really suffering as we do. What that would make Jesus' life is a, a phony, a fakery, a forgery. It would mean that he's pretending to suffer, but he's not suffering. He's pretending to learn, but he's not learning. He's pretending to be tempted, but he's not really tempted. That's not how Jesus lived his life. He lived his life learning as we learn, being tempted as we are tempted, suffering as we are suffering, and forgiving as we must forgive. 
Philippians 2 talks about Jesus' life on earth in humility. He left glory, came in humility. It says, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God was something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. What that means is Jesus retained all of his divinity, all of his divine attributes, fully God, but set those aside and chose not to access them or avail himself to them when it benefited him. Jesus lived a fully human life as you live. How did he live his life? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus suffered. Jesus learned. Jesus overcame temptation by living the perfect spirit-filled life. I've got 10 points for you because I get paid by the point, so I got a lot of them. And the first one is this, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, Luke chapter one, verse 35, the angel said to Mary, his mother, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. How was Jesus conceived? By the power of the Holy Spirit. In addition, that title of Christ means anointed by the Holy Spirit. So the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit begins not just on the earth, but in eternity past, and it continues at the conception moment in the womb of his mother Mary. Number two, Jesus lived under the Holy Spirit. It says this in his baptism in Matthew 3, 16. When Jesus was baptized, so here's the Father speaking from heaven, uh, Jesus coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Here is the entire Trinity. When Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. As Jesus comes up out of the water in his baptism, God the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in a way that everyone can see it. It's God's way of saying, this is my son. This is my chosen one. Everything he will say is a word from me. Everything he will do is a deed from me. And I love how Mark, or excuse me, Matthew articulates this. He says that the Holy Spirit rested on him. That language is there that it continued in relationship with Jesus. That from this moment forward, everywhere Jesus went, the Holy Spirit was with him and on him and in him and through him. Everything that he said, everything that he did. I need you to see Jesus was, is fully God, set aside the continual use of his divine attributes, did not cheat. He lived by the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit, and he has a life for you that follows the life that he lived. Next, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 4.1 says Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. How many of you are a little Pentecostal, a little, okay, you charismatics? How many of you are charismatic? Raise one hand, okay? You are Pentecostal, raise them both. I know you feel good doing that, you're welcome, okay? You're welcome, you feel like, woo, that's good, okay. Now, what you've heard growing up is that it's good to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be a Spirit-filled man and live a Spirit-filled life. And the question is, what does that look like? That looks like Jesus. 
The problem that we have is when we take anyone other than Jesus and make them the example of what it means to be spirit-filled. Only Jesus was perfectly, continually filled by the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus was perfectly, continually filled by the Holy Spirit. And this is language like when you're out sailing and a sail is set and the wind comes and it fills the sail and it provides its strength and direction to move forward, that's your life. God wants you to repent of sin and trust in Jesus and have a submissive, trusting heart so that your sail is set. Here's the big idea. The wind of God's spirit is always blowing, but God's men oftentimes don't set their sail. And as a result, you don't receive the power of the Holy Spirit and he doesn't move and compel you forward because your sail is down. If you're not being filled by the Holy Spirit, if you're not being powered by the Holy Spirit, if you're not being led by the Holy Spirit, it's not because the wind of the Spirit is not blowing, but because for some reason of unbelief, sin, rebellion, or apathy, you have taken your sail down. As a result, your boat is dead in the water, but that is your fault. Jesus was filled by the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells the Ephesians, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Men who are not filled with the Holy Spirit have a great lack, they have a great longing, and rather than filling it with the Spirit, they fill it with spirits. You men who have a drinking problem don't have a drinking problem, you have a Holy Spirit problem. And that is you have substituted the Spirit for the spirits, rather than being filled with the presence of God, you're drinking to forget the presence of God, and that will not help you, that will not heal you, that will not move you, that will not deliver you. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Number four, Jesus was led by the Spirit, Matthew 4.1. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. You and I need to continually be led by the Holy Spirit. Your job, my dear friends, some of you are planners, some of you are organized, some of you put together a very comprehensive cognitive plan for your life and then you pray that God would bless your plan. God will never bless your plan. You do not bring your plan to God, you bring yourself to God and ask for his plan. For your family, for your business, for your ministry. What we find here is Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. So each one of us, our singular goal must be, I want to be led by God's will. I want to walk in God's will. I want to know God's will for my life and I wanna walk in God's will for my life. That takes a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. He primarily speaks to us through the scriptures. We primarily speak to him through worship and prayer. And this is how the relationship with God is formed and grown so that we can be led by the Spirit. Now, what it says here, Jesus was led by the Spirit into what kind of place? A wilderness. Just because you're in a wilderness does not mean that God has forsaken you. He may have in fact led you. Jesus at this point, he is alone. He is suffering, he is poor, he is hungry, and he's in the will of God and he's led by the Spirit of God. 
What I love about this is it shows us that just because you're in a wilderness does not mean that you are away from God's presence. That if God leads you into a wilderness, and some of you were there, you were married, now you're divorced. You were employed, now you're unemployed. You felt like you had a secure plan for your future, and now the bottom has fallen out. And it feels for you like a wilderness, like a barren wasteland. Where are the resources? Where are the relationships that would nourish my life and give me joy and hope and peace? God, have you left me? Have you abandoned me? If you've walked in the will of God, if you're led by the Spirit of God, then you're still in the presence of God, and it is better to be in a wilderness in God's will than anywhere else in your will. Number five, Jesus defeated temptation by the Holy Spirit. How many of you have been tempted by sin. Is this anything you've shared with me? Okay, we've all been tempted, amen? Now here's the deal. Satan will bait your hook. Every one of us has some sort of bait that we find most interesting. Drugs, alcohol, sex, fame, money, power, comfort, whatever your bait is, Satan doesn't care. He, he will bait your hook, hoping that you're a dumb fish that swims by, sees the bait, ignores the hook, takes the bait, gets reeled in, dropped on the deck of the boat, clubbed over the head, and killed. That's his plan for you. What happens is, sometimes we look at another man's bait, and we're like, that's stupid. Why do you like that? And they're like, I was thinking the same thing. I was, you, you're looking at porn, and you can't stop spending money, and you have an accountability group with Jack Daniels and Jose Cuervo, and, and I don't know why you do that. What happens is, every man has his own temptations. Every man has his own bait on the hook. What we don't wanna do is look at another man and judge his bait. We wanna look at ourselves and judge our bait. What is Satan right now? I'm not talking in the past. I'm not talking when I was in junior high, I used to struggle with, no, you didn't. I'm talking about last night when you were in the hotel room and you had to decide which channel you would watch and not watch. I'm talking about what you're going to say to your wife and your kids when you go home. I'm talking about what you're gonna do on the job when you return on Monday. I'm not talking about the things that are well in the rear view mirror, but things that constantly live in the windshield of your life. What are the temptations, the struggles, the bait that's always on the hook for you? How will you overcome temptation? Let me read this to you from the Lord Jesus. Matthew 4, 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You and I have been tempted, but I'll tell you what, to get tempted by the devil is a whole nother level of temptation. And what the Bible says here is that Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and showed him everyone and everything he could have. Here's all of the sex, here's all of the money, here's all of the fame, all of the power, all of the glory. If you took every carnal, fleshly, selfish desire of every man in this stadium, Jesus saw all of that in an instant, and he was told simply, if you'll worship me, I'll give you that. You can have a crown without a cross. He was tempted as you are tempted. How do I know this? Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted as you are tempted. Whatever bait is on your hook, whatever your enemy is setting before you, whatever sins you struggle with, whatever lust, passions, desires you long for, whatever fleshly, carnal, fallen urgings and inclinations you have, 
Jesus experienced those same temptations. And he was not a fake or a forgery. He was not Clark Kent pretending to struggle and suffer. He set aside the continual use of his divine attributes to live a fully human life, to be tempted as you are tempted. What I love about this, when you and I are tempted, when we are struggling, when we are suffering, we do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with us. We do not have a God who has no idea what we are going through. We do not have a God when we come to him, he says, I don't know. I've never been humbled. I've never dwelt in a body. I've never dealt with humanity. I've never experienced temptation. Good luck, you're on your own. I have no way to relate to you. We have a God who is drawn near to us, so when we are tempted, we can draw near to him, and he's a God who understands and sympathizes. You need to know that. Because many of you only go to Jesus after you've sinned for forgiveness. You go to him when you're tempted and before you sin for deliverance. It says here that he was led by the spirit and tempted by the devil. I I didn't have this in my notes. In fact, I don't have much in my notes, but I feel inclined to share this with you. Some of you, this is a word for you. Temptation and sin are not synonymous. Some of you men, I I, I don't know, I can feel it. When you're tempted, you feel defeated. How could I want that? Why why am I desiring that? I mean, this, this has been the, I can see some of you, this has been you. Why do I want that? Why do I struggle with that? Why do I long for that? And you're tempted. But if you haven't sinned, it's a victory. If you haven't sinned, it's a victory. So in that moment you're tempted, that's when you talk to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, you know what I'm tempted by right now and you know exactly what it feels like to be tempted by this. And you know how to overcome this temptation because you were without sin and perfect. And Jesus, the Holy Spirit gave you the power to say no to this temptation So Holy Spirit, I'm inviting you to bring me the power that Jesus had to say no to this and yes to him, okay? True or false, God will answer that prayer, yes. Every son who cries out to his father in his moment of need needs to know that his father is ready, willing, and able to serve that son. You need to know that temptation and sin are different. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus never sinned. Therefore, when you are tempted, you have not sinned, but it is an opportunity to either sin or worship, but you have a decision to be made. And I want you in that moment to remember that the Holy Spirit is present and powerful. 
to keep you from sinning and to help you in worshiping. This is intensely practical. And thanks be to God that Jesus knows exactly what you're struggling with and going through. Jesus defeated temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number six, Jesus did ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. How many of you are in ministry? How many of you want to do ministry? How many of you serve at your church or a parachurch? How many of you want to be used for God? How many of you want to serve the kingdom of God in a volunteer or vocational capacity? And some of you struggle and wonder. You're like, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I have the gifts. I don't know if I have the ability. I don't know if I have the capacity. Let me answer for you. You don't. But he does. You don't, but he does. See, when we're weak, we're strong. And our power, his, his power is perfected in your weakness. And so here's what we read about Jesus. Uh, Luke 4, 14 and 15. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Right? He's, he's, he's traveling and doing ministry in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out among all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogue, being glorified by all. What it says is Jesus went out and he was preaching, teaching, doing miracles. His ministry was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the kingdom of God showing up on the earth, showing off among the kingdoms of the earth. If you want to do ministry, it's not about your calling. It's not about your talents. It's not about your gift. It's not about your ability. It's not about your experience. It's not about your intellect. It's not about your hipness. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you and through you. And sometimes in spite of you, that's, that's, how, that's how I do it, okay? Now, you need to know this, that God longs and looks for those who are willing to receive the power of his Spirit to do ministry, and the whole point of Jesus' ministry is Jesus' ministry is not something that he did for God. It's something he did by God's power. Your ministry is not something you do for God. It's something that God does through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number seven, Jesus lived by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. How many of you have heard about the anointed man of God? And it's good to be an anointed man of God and you need God's anointing on your life. Luke 4, 16 through 18, he came to Nazareth. That was his hometown. Little dumpy rural hick town, right? God can do great things from small places. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, so their version of church. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. This is Jesus telling us how he will live his life. Do you want to live a life like Jesus? Jesus tells us how he lived his life. He goes into the synagogue as was his custom. That means he did this regularly. He took out the scroll of Isaiah written, what, six, 700 years prior. He goes to a section and he reads it. And here is the section that he reads the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus lived his life under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gives to his people the anointing of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus lived his whole life, 
in the presence of and by the power of the Holy Spirit so you, if you are a Christian, can live your entire life in the presence of and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I, I wanna tell you this. Non-Christians have no ability or opportunity to live this life. This is a supernatural life. This is a miraculous life. This is a kingdom life. This is the life of God invading, transforming your life so that your life reflects the life of Jesus. Some of you have not heard a lot about this. Some of you have heard it so much that you have overlooked what is obvious and wonderful that your relationship with the Holy Spirit determines whether or not your life will look like Jesus. So I gotta ask you, my friend, how's your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Are you filled by the Spirit? Are you led by the Spirit? Are you praying in the Spirit? Are you reading the scriptures that the Spirit has written? Are you singing and worshiping in the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you submitting to godly authority so that your soul might be corrected and directed by those who are filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you one who is yielding to the will of God for your life so that the anointing of God can guide your life? Oftentimes we hear people talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. What Jesus had was a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Number eight, Jesus' emotions were regulated by the Holy Spirit. How many of you guys have problems with your emotions? Somebody say, I don't have emotions, it's not a problem. That's a problem, okay? Some of you are like, I have two emotions, angry and asleep. That's also an emotional problem. Most men are emotionally constipated. Amen? If you don't believe me, ask your wife. She will confirm my point. Most men are emotionally constipated and confused. Jesus was a, a, a man who lived a perfect life. He's the God man. But he lived it with a perfect emotional life. Let me ask you some questions. Did Jesus ever get angry? And it was a perfect anger, not like ours. See, some of you guys, that's your verse. You're like, Jesus got angry, but he didn't live there, right? I mean, that was, he visited there rarely, but that's not where he had his mail sent to because that's where he moved to, angry. Did Jesus ever get sad? Yeah. Did Jesus ever cry? Yes, he did, when his friend died. Jesus had a full emotional life. Did Jesus ever have joy? Yes, he did. I'll read it to you. Luke 10, 21. He, that is Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Who regulated Jesus' emotional life? The Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you this. There are three things. There are experiences in your life. They're like fuel. There, there is your emotional life. That's like your motor. Combustion, explosion, power. That's in your emotions. But the Holy Spirit, he's the steering wheel. Any of you tried to drive without steering functioning? One of my first cars, I'm going down the freeway, the steering goes out. The fuel is flowing, the motor is firing, the steering is not working. Many of you men, that's your life. Experiences happen, the fuel is flowing. The emotions are feeling. That means that the explosion and the power is occurring. 
but there is no direction. As a result, you're a man who's driven by his emotions. I'm hungry, I'm gonna go eat. I'm horny, I'm gonna go do something else. I, I'm depressed, I'm gonna go drink. I'm angry, I'm gonna go kick the dog and yell at the woman and, and go find another woman and another dog who like being kicked, okay? Because you're driven by your emotions. Some of you say, well, is there an option? Yes. Jesus' emotional life was driven by the Holy Spirit. So what some of you men will do, you'll excuse yourself. How do I know this? Because I'm a man who's a hypocrite. And so I have done this myself, amen? Some of you hear me and be like, how does he know this? Because this is what he does. This is what we all do. That's why we all need him, amen? So here's what I've done. I have had something happen that got me emotional, and then I felt like I could say or do what I wanted, and when someone said, you shouldn't have said that, or you shouldn't have done that, I say, well, look what happened. And I point back to the event, not to my response. True or false, this is a problem for men. Okay, this is a problem for one kind of man, one who's breathing. Okay, other men don't struggle with this. But for men who are breathing, this is an issue, amen? So what happens, something happens. The fuel is flowing. You're feeling it in your emotions. There's a lot of explosion and power and drive. The Holy Spirit takes the steering wheel of your will. And he says, don't let your anger lead you into sin. Don't let your hurt lead you into hate. Don't let your loss lead you into sin. And what he does, he takes all of the experience, all of the emotions, and he directs and drives them towards holiness and the will of God. Was Jesus a passionate man? Absolutely. I mean, we're here 2,000 years later talking about him. Some of you men have killed your emotions because your emotions don't have the Holy Spirit on the steering wheel of your will. And as a result, your emotions always get you into trouble Anger, fighting, hurt, bitterness, rage, lashing out, tongue violence. And so what you've done, you've crucified your emotional life. Now you're not just dead to your temptation, you're dead to your savior, you're dead to your wife, you're dead to your kids, you're dead to your friends. God doesn't want you to be dead, he wants you to be directed. He wants you to feel the experiences of your life, have a full emotional response, and have the Holy Spirit on the wheel of your life driving your will toward a holy and godly response. Number nine, Jesus defeated the demonic by the power of the Spirit. Do we believe in Satan and demons? We do. We believe that beyond this world that we see is a world that we do not see. We believe that in addition to angels, there are fallen angels called demons. That's why we do not believe that spirituality is a good thing because spirituality includes angels and demons. It includes God and Satan. We don't want spirits, we want the Holy Spirit. And what happens is that you need to know that there is a demonic war that is coming for you and your marriage and your family. How many of you men are married? Let me say this about Satan. Satan didn't even show up until Adam was married and they had a call on their life for ministry. 
Some of you single guys, you think, well, I just can't wait to get married. Woo, because then I won't be tempted. How many married guys realize Satan didn't even show up until the reception? Amen? Satan waits until Adam is married, there's a call on their life, and then he shows up because he loves to attack marriage, he loves to attack family, he loves to divide brother against brother, and he loves to divide father against mother. The question is not, is Satan attacking you? The question is, how should you respond? Here's what it says in Luke 11:20. If it is by the finger of God, Jesus says that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let me tell you this about Satan and demons. Satan and demons are more powerful and resilient than you. Here's how the demonic realm works. Demons, Satan and demons, they do not have our physical limitations. Satan doesn't need a nap. Satan doesn't need to have dinner. Satan doesn't need a Sabbath day. Satan doesn't need a summer vacation. Right now, I'm tired because I'm 46 and I'm aging in dog years and I could take a nap on the stage, amen? And I'm sweating like Mike Tyson in a spelling bee. I have reached, I need one of those towels. I have reached, I have reached the point of fatigue. Satan never reaches the point of fatigue. Demons never reach the point of fatigue. So here's what happens. When you are hungry, isolated, and tired, Satan comes to hit you. When you're hungry, isolated, and tired, Satan comes to hit you. How do I know this? This is when he came to hit Jesus. 40 days of fasting, 40 days of solitude, 40 days of the wilderness, then Satan comes to hit Jesus when he's hungry, isolated, and tired. He's at the limits of his humanity. You will reach the limits of your humanity. There's only so much that you can take. There's only so much that you can endure. There's only so much energy that you have. And Satan never grows weary and demons never grow tired and they wait for your moment of exhaustion. And the Holy Spirit can conquer Satan and demons with a proverbial finger because his power is all powerful and his strength never wanes and he never reaches the limits that we do in our humanity. And so Jesus says, Satan and demons are defeated in my ministry by the finger of God. My dear friend, when you are tempted, when you are struggling, when you and your family are under demonic attack, when you and your wife feel like you can't go another mile, when your kids have driven you to the breaking point, that's when you need a touch from the finger of God. His name is the Holy Spirit, and he is all powerful to those who have reached the end of their power. Lastly, I have good news for you, brother. Jesus said you can have the same spirit that he had. Here's how he says it. Luke 11:13. 13. If you then who are evil, Jesus knows that we're sinners who need a savior. Know how to give good gifts to your children. Okay, dads, question. Do you love to give gifts to your kids? Do you love to bless them? My line with my kids is always this. 
I will spoil you, but I don't want you to act spoiled. Some of you say, I'm not gonna spoil my kids. I'm bummed for your kids. It's okay to spoil your kids as long as they don't act spoiled, amen? God's a father who spoils his kids, just doesn't want them to act spoiled. Attitude of gratitude. Jesus says, you know, even bad dads give good gifts. How much more will the heavenly father give who to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit. Jesus lived his whole life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at Jesus' life, we say, that's an amazing life. That is not just a life that you and I can admire, that's a life that we can experience. Not perfectly, but increasingly until we're in his presence and we experience it perfectly and eternally. This is the difference between a biography and a testimony. Our world only has biographies. Here's what I did. Here's how I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Here's how I changed my life. A testimony is, here's the power of God at work in the life of Jesus for me. Here's the Spirit of God bringing the life of Jesus into me. This is the Spirit of God changing me so that Jesus' life takes over my life and my life echoes Jesus' life. How many of you greatly admire the life of Jesus? Okay, amen? How many of you want the life of Jesus? Amen? So the Bible says that God wants men to lift up holy hands in prayer, all hands up. Father God, these are your sons. Father God, these are your sons. Father God, they need the power of the Holy Spirit. They need the presence of the Holy Spirit. They need the person of the Holy Spirit. Father, I'm your son. I too need the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, the life of our big brother Jesus is not just one that we want to admire, it's one that we want to experience. Father God, we don't want our life to be a biography about what we did. We want it to be a testimony about what the Holy Spirit did. Father God, in faith, for some of us, faith is small as a mustard seed. We take the words of Jesus at face value. We come to you now, Father, knowing that you are a good father who likes to spoil and give good gifts to your sons. And you promised us and we trust you that if we ask for the Holy Spirit, that we would receive the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for being in our midst. Thank you for bringing the comfort and the healing and the hope and the help of Jesus. Thank you for giving the sins of these brothers. Holy Spirit, please wash out their hurts. Please take away their bitterness. 
please bring back to life their emotions. Please renew their affections for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, as we hear the rain thunder down upon us, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to thunder down upon us, that we would be your people, that we would be in your presence, that we would experience the life of Jesus. That as this water is cleansing this land, that Holy Spirit, you would cleanse these men this would be a sacred moment, a prophetic moment, a life-giving, destiny-changing moment. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence. Thank you for being a good gift. Please rest on us as you did Jesus and cause our lives to follow his life. In his name we pray, amen.